following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 25 to 32 this morning. Romans chapter 11. Uh, let's go ahead and read the passage uh, beginning in verse 25. It would help if I'm on the right page. There we go. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that He may show mercy to all. Well, I imagine that, that this passage probably sparks a lot more curiosity today than it would have three weeks ago. And uh, that's because uh, Israel was pressed into the news, tragically, by the attack by Hamas. And so, unless you've been living with your head absolutely in the sand, uh, you're probably aware of what happened. So, on October 7th, uh, two weeks ago, two weeks from yesterday, uh, Hamas made a surprise attack on Israel. And within hours, they had killed uh, some 1,300 Israeli citizens, uh, including 260 civilians who were at a music festival just having a good time. They're not combatants or anything like that. As well, in another community, they killed around 40 babies. And you probably saw that some of them were mutilated terribly. Over 400,000 people have been displaced because of the fighting. And Hamas as well took around 150 hostages in the early hours of the fight. And, and many of those statistics have only grown and grown exponentially in the last two weeks. It's all very tragic, right? It's sad. It's, it's horrible to see the images. But unfortunately, it shouldn't be all that surprising. Because Hamas has never been coy about what their intentions are. Their, their mission is to destroy the Israeli nation and the Israeli people. But what has been surprising and shocking and very disturbing has been to see the large rallies here in our own country and in, in other Western nations, supporting the attack. Right? Like, what in the world? Didn't we experience the Holocaust last century? Did we learn anything from the Holocaust? It's very disturbing, isn't it? To see people in our own nation celebrating the death of the Jews. And, and to not see everyone else in our country horrified that they are doing that. And so, we, 
And, and so all people should be outraged. I mean, everyone should be angry about what has taken place. And Christians, Christians should be especially offended because we don't just see the Jews as another people group. And we don't simply see Israel as just another uh, political region, geographical region in our world. No, if you grew up a Christian, you grew up hearing the stories of Israel from your childhood. You celebrated when David killed Goliath. You breathed a sigh of relief when Daniel climbed out of the lion's den. And the land of Israel, that is the place where Jesus was born into the world. It's where He walked. It's where He taught. It's where He performed His miracles. It's the place where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so, you want to know what's going on. Where is all this headed? You may have wondered, is God judging the Jews? Has He abandoned them? Could could the Jews be eradicated? Could Hamas's goal be accomplished? Will God defend His people? Well, it just so happens that we are in the clearest New Testament passage that deals with the future of Israel. Now, I'm not going to, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to make any predictions today about how the present conflict is going to turn out. But God does tell us the end of the story in this very passage. But I also want to emphasize that God doesn't just tell us the end of Israel's story here. No, He also wants to shape your heart. And so since it would be easy for us to get lost in the weeds of a passage like this, I just want to tell you up front where we are ultimately headed today. And, um, and, and so the, the fundamental challenge that God wants you to take from this passage is to see yourself, see the Jews, and see all the world through the lens of God's glorious, sovereign, and merciful plan. So that's where Paul is going, all right, and where we're ultimately going. But to truly appreciate that challenge, we have to understand exactly the problem that Paul is addressing in this passage. So, so the problem there is again defined in, in the beginning of verse 25. Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, now you can see there that, that Paul's primary pastoral concern is, is to confront uninformed arrogance. Now, has that ever happened to you? You know, I mean, you think of junior hires, you know. Junior hires tend to be uninformed, ignorant people. And, and sometimes we're not, sorry, junior hires. Sorry, the rest of us oftentimes are not much better. Do you ever have strong opinions about things that you know nothing about? It's really easy to identify that in other people. We're not so good about identifying it in ourselves. Well, I hate to break it to you, if you tend to have strong opinions where you are ignorant, the book of Proverbs calls you a fool. And it challenges you to be a wise man, to grow in wisdom. And it tells you that that a wise man is realistic about what he knows and about what he doesn't know, and he always strives to have educated, rational opinions and thoughts. And in this case, Paul is especially concerned that the Gentile Christians at Rome were making arrogant assumptions. And they were assuming that they were better than the Jewish people because the fact that they were Christians and the the Jews were not. So so we've talked about this quite a bit as we've worked our way through Romans chapter 11, that that, that most first century Jews, 
It's not just that they rejected the gospel. They were violently opposed to, to the spread of Christianity. So, so, you know, lest we sit here and just look down on these Jewish Christians for, for being so evil and hateful, you just imagine what it would be like to, to get saved at Thessalonica. Paul shows up in town, he preaches the gospel. You've never heard of this Jesus guy before, but, but you understand the gospel and you get saved. And you're excited about Christianity. And then across town, the Jews, God's chosen people, they, they, they inspire, they, they, they rally a mob, a violent mob who is there to destroy Paul and to destroy Christianity and to eradicate your faith from town. Jews are doing that. And so it would be really hard if you were one of them to, to stomach that. Hard not to hate them. And it's, they were so bad, so, so evil, that verse 28 calls the Jews of Paul's day, and, and I think you could continue that to the present. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, meaning the spread of the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. So, so a lot of Gentile Christians, they struggled with hating the Jews or, or, or looking down on them very strongly. And, and so that's a problem enough. But to make matters worse, not only did they despise the Jews, but, but they used the Jews' sin to arrogantly conclude that they, were the, that, that they were better than the Jews and that we are the point of God's story. You know, some of them were claiming, we, we've got this all figured out. You know, we're, we're really a whole lot better than those Jewish people. So God, God set the Jews aside because He really wanted us. We are so much more valuable than they are. And they thought they were so special and so wise. And Paul says they grew wise in their own estimation. They thought they had everything figured out. Now, now that kind of bravado should always be a red flag. But, but unfortunately, I've, I've seen a lot of people, been around a lot of people, who, who, who then you know, have that same bravado and they use theology, they use the Scriptures, not to glorify God, but to glorify their own creativity or brilliance. You know, so, so they don't study the Bible, they don't teach the Bible, because it's about God to them, it, it's all about themselves. And usually people who use the Bible to lift themselves up, their problem is not just that they're arrogant, they usually end up being wrong too. Because it's not about faithfulness to God, it's about elevating themselves. And so beware of pride. Because pride never takes you somewhere profitable. It, it never takes you somewhere for God's glory. Watch out for pride. And if someone ever confronts you for your pride, or challenges you about your pride, then, then listen. If your reaction to correction is to be hostile and defensive, that's probably not a good sign about where your heart is. And then beyond that, listen to, to good correction of your thinking. You know, so Paul here, he doesn't just confront them for their pride. He, he spends the rest of the passage correcting their theology by explaining God's plan for the Jews and for the Gentiles. So, so when he mentions there in verse 25 the mystery, that's what he's going to unpack in the rest of the passage. He's going to give us a, a fuller, more complete understanding of, of what God is doing today in the church and how that ultimately contributes to his plan for the Gentiles. 
or for the Jews. So, so I want to emphasize before we go on that this passage is not merely here to satisfy your curiosity about the future or, or to, to just give, fill your brain with more facts. No, God put this passage in the Bible because you need to think better about yourself, about God, about the world in which you live. And you need to see all of it through the lens of God's glorious, sovereign, and merciful plan. So that said, verses 25 through 27, then uh, explain God's big picture plan for the rest of time. So this is a great little passage because you want to know where the world is going. Well, in three verses, Paul tells you where, where all of history is headed. So let's talk about God's mysterious plan. And, um, and Paul describes this plan in two simple stages. So first of all, in the present, God is saving the elect Gentiles. So look at what he says at the end of verse 25. He says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, now this is, again, a really important statement for, for the people of, of Paul's day because both Jewish and Gentile Christians were, were tempted to think that the Jewish apostasy was a massive failure in God's purpose. You know, they, they looked at it, and these are God's chosen people. This can't be God's plan. He must be devastated. God must be devastated. God must be surprised. What is God going to do about that? Now, we, that, we do that too, right? When, when things happen in our lives that we don't understand. But just because you are surprised, and just because you're devastated, does not mean that God is. In fact, He never is. No, Paul responds, no, 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 there, there are no accidents with God. He is sovereign over every detail of His creation. And, and, and particularly here, he notes that God planned to partially harden the Jews. Now, now notice there he says partial hardening, and that's because that there's a Jewish remnant. Paul already talked about the fact that, that there were some uh, g- genuine Jewish converts, including Paul himself. So this is a partial hardening, but, but he notes here that God in eternity past planned this hardening of the Jews. It did not surprise him, and he did so to accomplish his greater purpose. Now, what is that purpose? What is God primarily doing in the present age? Well, he tells us here that that God's focus in, in the present time is to gather the elect Gentiles from every corner of the earth. So that's what he means when he mentions there the fullness of the Gentiles. God has a fullness. God has has chosen Gentiles all over the world. Every corner of the earth. And and God will save every single one of them. He's not going to leave one of them behind. He will bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. He will save them all. So, So you might think that the world is out of control. The church is dying. God is on the brink of failure. But you are wrong. God is in complete control. And God is accomplishing His plan today perfectly. He is working all over the world to to save the lost and, and to draw people to Himself. And God will not miss a single one. And after God has saved all the Gentiles that He has elected to Himself, He says right on time, 
He will move forward with his plan. So do you believe that God is in control? That he is sovereign? Now you probably know to nod your head yes. But, but how do you respond to the news and the daily burdens of your life? Do you fret and stew like a practical atheist? You know, maybe you try and carry the way of the world on your own shoulders. As if you are sovereign and the world depends on you. Now get over yourself. See the sovereignty of God. Trust the Lord. And have eyes to see that God is in control and He is accomplishing His good purpose. And specifically, I want to challenge you to see the world primarily through the lens of God's great commission purpose. Now, as I said a few weeks back, ABC, CNN, Fox News, whatever, wherever you get your news, they are not reporting on the most important things happening in the world today. Because the most important things happening in the world today are happening in the church. As God is accomplishing His great commission purpose, as His glory is being spread to the ends of the world. Folks, God is at work. He is saving the lost. He is showing mercy to sinners. And He is fulfilling all of His purposes. So God is at work today to to bring the Gentiles to Himself. And then, once He has finished that part of His plan, Paul goes on to tell us that in the next age, God will save all Israel. Look at what he says again in verses 26 and 27. He says, and so, really really following the fullness of the Gentiles, he says, and so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, Now folks, these are incredible verses to imagine, especially when you look at the present partial hardening of the Jews today. So yes, of course, as we've talked about, there are some Jewish Christians in our country and around the world, but the truth is is that most of them are not just lost, they are far away from God. I mean, most of the Jews in our country are some of the most liberal people you would ever meet. And most Jews around the world, it's not just that they don't believe the Old Testament. I mean, well, well they don't just not believe the New Testament. I mean, most of them don't even believe the Old Testament. And, and, and it's the same in the country of Israel. Now, sure, there's Orthodox Jews, lots of Orthodox Jews there. But, but the state of Israel is not, actu- not, not really much of a, a bastion of, of godly faith and godly ethics. But, but all that darkness among the Jews, it, none of it defies God's sovereignty. No, it's all a part of His purpose. And someday, God says, He promises, that He will bring about a radical reversal. I mean, think about that statement there in verse 26. He says, all Israel will be saved. So Jewish people from every corner of the world They will turn to Jesus, they will understand who He is, they will believe on Him, and they will be born again. That's incredible to think about. God has an amazing plan for His chosen people. Now the question you want to answer is, well, when is that going to happen? 
Now, of course, I'm not going to stand here today and give you a date or anything like that. And Paul just simply says it will happen after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And after that has taken place, he says a deliverer will come from Zion. Now, what does that mean? Well, other passages teach. When we think about the, the, the fullness of the Gentiles, that someday at the end of the church age, Jesus is going to take the church to heaven. We, we oftentimes call that the rapture. He will take God's people to heaven with Him. And shortly after that, the Bible teaches that Antichrist will rise up. And Antichrist will, will start the seven-year tribulation by signing a peace treaty with the Israelite people. And, 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 and so He's going to promise to Israel that He can bring peace to the Middle East. He's going to promise that He will defend Israel, take care of them. And, and it's not very hard to see why that would be attractive, right? I mean, considering all the chaos that, that has taken place in that part of the world for centuries. And so, Israel's going to get on board, the world's going to get, get on board, and for three and a half years, Israel is going to think they've found their Savior. They are going to laud Him, give thanks for Him, and not only is He going to care for Israel, but, but the Bible teaches that He will unite the world under His authority. But then, after three and a half years, He will betray the people of Israel. And He is going to set up an, an idol to Himself in the temple in Jerusalem. What the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. And He's going to demand that the Jewish people and all the world worship that image. And he's going to turn on the Jewish people, begin to persecute them. And then finally, he is going to turn the entire world against the Jews. Again, it's not hard to see how he could do that. And he is going to gather all the world's armies to attack the people of Israel and to eradicate them from the earth. Now, Israel's going to fight, but, but you consider how small uh, Israel is compared to the world. I mean, that's a hopeless situation. But, but as all that process is unfolding, the Bible says that, that God's going to send witnesses and God's going to begin to stir among the Jewish people and many of them are going to begin to get saved. They're going to believe on Jesus. And then finally, at the end of the tribulation, when Antichrist and his armies are there, are ready to destroy the people of Israel, as our passage says, the Deliverer will come from Zion. Speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus is going to appear in glory and in power with a sword on a horse, not on a donkey as He came the first time. And, and it will be the end of Antichrist and His armies. When Jesus comes, when He puts His foot on the ground, Antichrist will be crushed. And, and as will all of His wicked allies. And then the Bible tells us, we looked at this verse a couple weeks ago, that when all this is done, it says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. So Jesus is going to stand before the Jewish people. And they're going to see the, the nail prints in His hands. Understand that, that they, are, they themselves, their people, their, their ancestors are responsible for that. 
And finally, they will recognize Him as their Messiah, as their Savior. They will turn to Him. And again, all Israel will be saved. Now, how is that going to happen? What's it going to look like? Well, Paul quotes Isaiah as saying here that He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And he well says in verse 27 that He will take away their sins. He's going to change their hearts and He's going to forgive them of their sin. Jeremiah chapter 31 tells us a little bit more about this. Now, now this is the passage about the new covenant and, and I believe that this passage does have a lot of significance for us as Christians. Alright? But, but notice here that this passage is fundamentally, I mean, God is clear that this promise is ultimately given to Israel. He says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And that is a remarkable promise. When you really begin to think about what God is saying He's going to do. And it's going to be an amazing display of sovereign grace. So in a moment, I mean, God is going to obliterate Satan's grip on the Jews. He's going to open their eyes to who Jesus is. And the mighty grace of Jesus is going to radically transform their hearts. Change them forever. And why is God going to do that? Is it because the Jews deserve it? Is it because they're going to figure something out that they've missed for the last 4,000 years? No. God says, this is my covenant with them. You'll notice as well what he says in verses 28 and 29. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, speaking of, of the Jews, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers there is a reference to Abraham in particular, but Isaac and Jacob also. They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So, think about the fact that that roughly 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, that's a long time, God made a covenant with Abraham. That Israel would be his people and he would be their God. But for 4,000 years, has Israel served God? No, for the most part, they have rebelled against his will. They have not believed his word. They, 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 they killed the prophets. They didn't listen to them. And ultimately, they killed God's own Messiah. But God's gifts and calling, are they dependent on us? Do they rest in our goodness? No, he says here, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God never breaks a promise. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going down this, this rabbit trail, but, but, but we as dispensationalists, we, we love this verse. Right? Because, because God is, is very clear here that, that He can't just arbitrarily decide, you know, I'm done with the Jews. I think I'll give all these promises to the Gentile church. No, He says, I made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 
So God will do everything He promised for the people of Israel. Not just some spiritual people of Israel. He says here that despite all that they have done, despite all of their sin, they are still beloved by God. Isn't that a beautiful window into God's character? Our God, again, think about how God has watched Israel reject His Word for 4,000 years. And, And I mean, the time's not even up yet. It could be another 4,000 years. But, it, but, but no matter how long it goes, God loves His people. He is full of mercy and He never breaks a promise. So there is nothing you or anyone else can do to thwart His sovereign will. He is faithful. So we ought to fear the Lord. We ought to love the Lord. And we ought to rest in the Lord. And when you turn on the news and there's another tragedy in the Middle East or anywhere else, don't despair. We saw last week in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has a glorious plan for the ages. He has it all mapped out. And His plan for Israel is just more evidence that God has left nothing to chance. So, so, So see the past, darkness of our world. So so don't look at the the, the darkness of our world. Don't look at the darkness of your circumstances and and despair. No, trust that God is going to keep every promise. There is nothing in this world that that, that rivals the, the purposes and the plans of God. He will keep every promise. God will address every injustice. He's going to fix everything that is broken. So verses 25 through 27 explain God's great plan for the Jews. And then Paul gets pastoral with two challenges based on God's plan. So the first challenge he gives is to love the Jews and love all of God's elect. And look again at what he says in verse 28. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of of the fathers. Now, now that verse is, is a fascinating verse, and it's full of, of difficult tension. So, so Paul says that the Jews are enemies. Enemies. And, and since enemies is in contrast with beloved, it's not saying that they don't like God. It's saying that God sees the Jews as enemies. Now, now why does God view the Jews of today as His enemies? Well, it's because they're opposing the spread of the gospel. They're hostile to the work of the Great Commission. So how would you like God to say, Joe is my enemy? Not think of anyone in here. Or Sally's my enemy and he's talking about you. Well, that's troubling. And it's stunning to consider that that from the perspective of God, the Jewish people, His chosen people are His enemies to, to the purpose that He's accomplishing. But but that's what Israel is concerning the the spread of the gospel. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. But but again, God's not surprised by that. And it's no accident. And it doesn't rival His plan. No, no, notice, God's glorious, merciful, sovereign plan is everywhere here. And, And in particular, He says that they are enemies for your sake. You know, the Gentile mission 
The church is not God's plan B. God doesn't have any plan Bs. And so what he's saying here is essentially that, that God's plan was that the Jewish people would reject Christ. And, and God would use their rejection of Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was always God's purpose. So, so there are no accidents in the world at large or in your life either. God is always working His great purpose, even in great darkness. There was a good will of God even in, in the hostility of the Jews to the gospel. You just think it's an example. Book of Acts. Acts chapters 8 and 9. And the Jews there in Jerusalem, they are trying to crush the church and wipe it from the face of the earth. It's a horrible thing. And yet what does Luke say with his understanding of the providence and sovereignty of God? That God used that hostile, violent persecution to force the church to begin to spread. To force it to Samaria and, and, and to the ends of the earth. God is always working His sovereign will. But, but the fact remains that the Jews were hostile to the Gospel. So, to get really practical, does that mean then that Gentile saints are free to hate them for that? And what about Christians today? Should we hate the Jews? Should we be just simply indifferent to them as if they are just another people group on the face of the earth? No. Because God says here very clearly in the second part of verse 28 that from the standpoint of God's choice, and the word there is a word for election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So God has chosen them. And God loves them to this day. And God has a glorious plan for the Jewish people. So God commands us to love them as He does. That's the point of verse 28. So, so that doesn't mean, of course, that, that we can't be critical of the Jewish people. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can't be critical of the Israeli state, right? Because it's more to be clear that the Israeli state and the Israel that, that God has in mind are not one and the same, right? The Israeli state can be wrong, and of course there's lots of people that are member citizens of the nation that, that aren't necessarily even Jews themselves. But, but God says that the Jewish people are our brothers and sisters from the standpoint of election. That, that's, that's the point of verse 28. There are brothers and sisters from the standpoint of election. And we're going to spend eternity worshiping God with the Jewish people. So, Christian, you should oppose anti-Semitism. And, and if you ever see someone who's defending the actions of Hamas, you are welcome to put them in their place. You should pray for the good of Israel. You should pray for their salvation. And, and when you have the opportunity to share the Gospel with one of them, you should take it. And then we should look at the entire world with, with the same eyes of faith that we should have towards the Jewish people. You know, that, that we need to, as we look not just to Israel, but, but the whole world, we should look at it with eyes of faith, understanding that God has people everywhere. And God is saving people everywhere. Now, it's easy to sit here and say amen to that. But sometimes... 
It's not so easy to feel that. You know, I remember when we lived in Detroit, our church had a, an evangelistic ministry among, uh, evan- uh, among Chinese students who came over to Wayne State University to, to do graduate work and postgraduate work. These were all brilliant people. And I wasn't very involved in the ministry, but uh, one time I was down with Heidi and we were sitting at this lunch. And um, I remember just looking at these Chinese students and, and the thought occurred to me that their government sent them here to get these PhDs and so forth so that they could go home and so that their nation could rival and be better than ours. And so the thought is there, are these people I should love or are these people I should view as rivals? And and it's difficult. And I had to remember then, and I think we need to remember often, that, that God plans to save people everywhere including among our national rivals. And so we as Christians need to have a vision for all souls and and believe that God can save all of them. So, So no one, no one in the world should hate racism more than Christians. Because what is the end game of the Great Commission? It's that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will surround the throne of God and in unity sing, worthy is the Lamb. I mean, folks, the New Testament was against racism a long time before it was cool. It always has been. And so we should be opposed to it. You know, God has beloved people everywhere. So so we should see all people, all nations, with eyes of faith, seeing them first for what God wants to do, not for our selfish interests. And of course, you need to carry that challenge down to, to your personal life, to how you look at your coworkers, your family, your classmates, your neighbors. There's someone in your life that you want to despise, that you wish would just go away. And, and they might be evil people. In the words of verse 28, they might be enemies of the spread of the gospel. And I certainly don't, don't want to minimize that or, or downplay the significance of that. There might be times where you need to keep your distance. Where, where you need to speak prophetically to the evil in their lives. But, but just as Israel, I mean, think about it. I mean, God can say in the same verse that they are enemies of the spread of the gospel and they are beloved from the standpoint of election. Both are true at the same time. And so, that might be true of your neighbor. He might be an enemy of the gospel of Christ, but God is just waiting for you to share the gospel with him because he plans to glorify himself by saving this wretched sinner through your witness. So see him as well from the perspective of God. So so don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. You stand by grace. And the same grace that saved you can save whoever is in your life. So always believe in God's power to save. Have hope. Have confidence in God's ability to change lives. So so love the Jews and love all people with eyes of faith that, that see this glorious plan of God. And then the second challenge he gives is glory in the mercy of God. Glory in the mercy of God. Now, remember that that the core problem that Romans 11 confronts is our tendency to twist the grace of God 
into an excuse to boast in myself. And don't pretend like you've never been tempted to do that. All of us are legalists at heart. We, we, like to, we like to yell at the legalist and accuse everyone of being a legalist, but we're all legalists at heart. And we all want to latch on to whatever lame reason we can find. We will find any lame reason to think that I'm better than that guy. You know someone that you are tempted to despise and you feel the tug on your heart to take advantage of any small place you can find to feel better than them. And so resist the urge. Don't go there. And how, how, how can you have the eyes of God that are described in this passage? Well, well, first of all, remember God's mercy to you. He says in verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. That's a humbling good reminder. You know, that, that, that God says, the avenue to the salvation of the Gentile church was not that we were so great. In fact, what does He say we are ourselves? He says we are disobedient. So it wasn't there was something great in us, but, but instead God used the disobedience of the Jews to bring the gospel to us. So, so God's mercy, not merit, is my only boast. I mean, we're sinners saved by grace. You probably are living a much healthier, better, godlier life with much better vision than the people around you. But you can't take any credit for it. All the credit goes to God. So as I've said several times, there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Pride is contrary to the nature of Christianity and the gospel. The Christians should be the humblest people anywhere. So stay near to the cross. Never forget what you were apart from the grace of God and where you would be without the grace of God. Give thanks that Jesus suffered for your sins. And don't boast about yourself. Boast about the cross. And so remember God's mercy to you. And then from there, expect God's mercy toward others. He goes on to say in verse 31, well, I'll read verses 30 and 31 together because they're making a point together. He says, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. Now, I didn't plan this a couple weeks back. But verses 31 and 32 complement what we looked at last week in Ephesians 1 so well. And that's because both passages say, place God's mercy to us in the context of God's marvelous plan for the ages. And specifically, he tells us here that, that your salvation was never just about you. No. You, as a Christian, are part of God's broader plan to glorify Himself. And verse 31 especially notes that God is going to use His mercy toward the church to someday draw the Jewish people to Himself. And we play a part in, in the unfolding of this incredible plan of God. So Christian, your life is about so much more than your monotonous daily routine. Some days you just feel like, what am I doing here? 
Why am I doing the same thing day after day after day? And your life is also about much more than the burdens you carry. It's certainly about much more than the pleasures you crave. No, you are a walking, living, breathing trophy of the grace and mercy of God. And you're part of God's eternal plan to to gather the elect to Himself from every corner of the world and to glorify His mercy and His grace. That God wants to use you to draw sinners to Himself. so, So look past all the other stuff and see God's grand purpose. Do something that matters with your life. Show off God's mercy at every chance. Pursue the lost with compassion and courage. If someone opens the door just a crack for you to talk about what God has done in your life, push through and talk about the grace and mercy of God. Give people the best gift imaginable, a window into the mercy of Jesus. And then to sum it all up, verse 32 says, glory in God's mercy. Verse 32 says, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Now again, we talked about this last week and and we also talked about it way back in chapter 9. That when God planned his grand story for the ages, he didn't just plan to glorify himself. He didn't just want to show off how powerful he is and how smart he is. No, at the center of God's plan for the ages is the fact that God really wanted to highlight his grace, his mercy, and his love. And you can see that in the unfolding of the story of God in the Bible. So so mercy and grace are, are not incidental to the character of God. They are central to his being. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that that God didn't create us merely to show His justice and power, but so that He could display His mercy? And and verse 32 pulls all of that together. Everything He said in chapters 9-11 through together and and says there again that, that all of this is He has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. I mean, that that really sums up everything we've seen in chapters 9-11. through And it notes there that what God is doing today among the Gentiles, what He did in the past among the Jews, what He will do in the future, none of it is random. God has planned every detail from eternity past. And ever since the creation of the world, He has been sovereignly executing that plan. All to glorify His amazing mercy. So so Christian, you are a trophy of the mercy of God. That is your purpose. That is why you're here. So so again, my my central challenge this morning is to see yourself, see the Jews, and see all the world through the lens of God's glorious, sovereign, merciful plan. God has a plan for the Jewish people. He's not going to break a single promise. Now someday He's going to bring a mighty revival and He is going to glorify His grace. And praise God for that hope. He has a plan for the world. He is moving all of creation to the day that He will reconcile all things to Himself, that Christ will reconcile all things to Himself and give it over to the Father in glory to both of them. And God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life to use you 
as a trophy of His grace. So see that plan. Glory in that plan. Give thanks for that plan. See see all of life through that plan. And then participate in that plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are. Lord, we praise You today as the doxology that follows will say that You are full of glory, full of wisdom, full of grace. Everything, Lord, is from You, through You, and to You. And God, we are so grateful that we can know this great God that we can be involved in your purposes, that we can worship you. And so God, we thank you for your grace towards us. We pray for any who are here who do not know that grace, that they would receive it this morning. And God, we pray again that you would give us eyes of faith to see your plans, your purposes for the world. Help us, Lord, to not to see the world through the eyes of the evening news, but through the eyes of Scripture. Help us to see people not through our selfish desires, but through your purpose and plan. And God, give us grace this week to think right, to love the right things, and then to do the things that you have called us to do. In Jesus' name.